this man came for Marturia. And it's, it's just not possible to get that in English, right? Um, he came for the action of a martus, that is, a witness, a testifier. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. This episode, we're giving you a sneak peek into the Magnus Fellowship. Enjoy this glimpse into Dr. Anthony Esselin's course, In the Beginning Was the Word. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to the Magnus Fellowship. Raise your hand on the screen if it's your first class in the fellowship. Excellent. You're in for a treat. I'm John Johnson. Uh, Volunteering is the executive director uh, of this soon-to-be great institution. It really is amazing. Uh, We've got uh, over 800 fellows enrolled. 600 so far plus have taken a course. And once you take one, you can't take just one. So for those of you who it's your first time, welcome. Please interact with each other um, in the class. Obviously, that's why we do it this way. You're not just watching Zoom. You're not just watching YouTube videos. Uh, So you are what make the fellowship great. Not only co-educated, but co-educators. So you being here makes this class uh, even better. And we've capped uh, capped. Enrollment to preserve intimacy and actually allow for great discussion with with your senior fellow. And so um, this class was originally going to be sort of co-taught by myself and Dr. Esselin, and for scheduling reasons, uh, and to sort of you know let you let you pick and choose. I know it's a really tough choice who you want to take a course with, but um, we're going to do back to back courses. So Dr. Esselin is going to start uh, in the beginning, literally for eight weeks. And then uh, I'll, I'll do an eight-week course uh, through Advent right after that uh, called In the End on Eschatology and Beatitude through St. John. And hopefully we will both end up in the same Eucharistic heart of things. So it's very exciting. You're here and, and, and um, you're going to be sort of at the feet of not only St. John, of course, uh, the great theologian and the, and the great beloved disciple who had the greatest insight into our Lord's heart besides Our Lady, but you're going to be at the feet of one of the greatest minds uh, of our generation here. Of course, Dr. Eslin will be there too. Just kidding. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, really, uh, we, are, we are so honored to have Dr. Anthony Eslin here. Y- you know him. He needs no introduction. Really one of the greatest poetic minds, translators, academics of our time. Uh, And he's here for us, 25 of us, to lead us into the heart of something great and beautiful. So of course, it goes without saying, please give it your all. Show up when you can. Let us know when you can't, because we do count on you being here. And support the Institute uh, to the extent that you can, uh, because it is free, it is freeing, but it's only possible because of your generosity. So if you can give us something every month, that really helps a lot. 
And other than that, we don't really shake you down too much about it. And we get criticized all the time for not charging for this stuff. But uh, that's what we do. We do we do it freely and, and our aim is freedom. So thank you so much for being here. And uh, I'm going to sort of fade away into the distance and let you guys enjoy class. And then I hope to see uh, many of you, if not all of you, for the follow-up course in eight weeks, uh, and which, which I'll take over. All right, Dr. Esselin, they are Can yours. One brief plug too. Sure. Um, I just, this is a plug for Esselin. If you can't get enough of him in class, um, his wife, let me know. I just posted it in the chat. Um, it's a Substack uh, In the journal. chat. Leave it to your wife. To- <laughs> <laughs> the wives are talking. No. Um, anyways, it sounds great to, to get more, more of his contact too, because we want to support him and, and his family. My wife too. Yeah. Yeah. Buy them books. All right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dr. Eslin, they're all, they're all yours. You guys have a great class. Thanks so much for being here. God bless you all. Bye-bye. Thanks, John. And uh, uh, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm abashed by what uh, uh, John ha, ha, has just said about me. So, sometimes I think that 90% of what I do is to notice what's in front of my my eyes um, and not be fooled by social fads or words, things like that. I read a lot of books, and I'm good at languages. And um, that that combination, especially... You know, I read a lot of books. I teach poetry. I, I've I've taught poetry for a living uh, for more than thirty five years. Um, I teach other things too, but that's been a a staple. And I think sometimes that um, our theologians, our professional theologians um, of the last several generations, uh, are missing something because they. They're not well grounded in poetry. Now, this is not true of such people as uh, Pope Saint John, uh, John Paul II or um, Pope Benedict, but it's true a lot of a lot of theologians. And so, when I read um, the the Gospel according to Saint John, after I learn to stumble around in Koine Greek. And then again, after I learned to stumble around in Hebrew, uh, I'm reading it with the eyes and the ears of someone who teaches poetry. And that has opened things out to me in scripture in some really remarkable ways. And again, I think I am just seeing what's in front of my nose to see. Um, And I'd like to share some of this with you. Now, some of what I'm going to say today does spring from uh, a study of language and poetry. Some of it, though, um, springs from what I've learned from my colleagues teaching theology and philosophy about uh, about ancient thought, okay? And I'd like to begin with that here, it, it, because it's very important, all right? I'm going to focus here for uh, about 10 minutes, and then I'm going to open up things up for questions on um, the key word at the beginning, 
of John's, of John's gospel, and that is the word beginning. Okay. Um, now, when we think in English of a beginning, we think of something that's starting like a, like a bus going down the street, right? It begins to move. Um, that's not exactly what either the Greek or the Hebrew implies, right? Uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And when St. John says that, immediately he expects everybody who is reading him to think of the beginning of Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, now, John, uh, and again, I think I have some insight into this because I dabble in languages, lots of them, right? Uh, John is a native speaker of Aramaic. That's the common Semitic language of everyday life in uh, Judea, Galilee. Um, his second language, hard to tell which was his second or which he was better in, okay? Because the standard language for everybody in uh, that part of the world at that time, if you were a merchant, uh, you were a soldier, you were an administrator, um, you know, the, the, the lingua franca, the, the language that everybody spoke, what, what, what was the English of the day was uh, what we call Koine Greek, right? Um, now, in the Western part of the empire would have been Latin, but in in the Eastern and the Central parts of the empire, it was, it was this common everyday Greek. Um, he is uh, no doubt fluent in that, but it's not his first language. His other literary language would have been classical Hebrew, okay? And that's the language that... He, he and Jesus and the apostles are probably singing hymns in, praying in, and of course reading when they read the scriptures. All right. Um, so it's it's kind of funny when people say, "Well, you know, Jesus." Our translations of scripture should be rather plain and ordinary because you know it was the common language of the time. That's not exactly true. Okay. In fact, in important ways, it's not at all true. Um, so we can imagine Jesus and the other people around him as being at least trilingual, perhaps perhaps more. Okay. Um, now, when a person like St. Matthew is writing his gospel, he's writing it, we know. Originally, he's composing it, he's thinking it out, and he's writing it out in Aramaic, right? And then it gets translated into Greek, perhaps by himself, perhaps by somebody else. Okay. But what John is doing is composing directly into Greek, even though it's not his first language. And when you do that, if you ever try to do that, right, you ever try to write something important or even something poetic in a language that is not your first language, you'll find yourself doing the things that John is doing all throughout here. Um, you'll find yourself relying on important concepts again and again, even repeating certain words again and again. Um, now, John does it with extraordinary art, and he's keen not just to let the words pick him, but he chooses the words deliberately. This word, arche, is a really important word, right? Now, in the Hebrew, in Genesis, it's bereshit, uh, in the beginning, that is, at, in the rosh. Um, you may know that uh, we've just had uh, Rosh Hashanah, right? Jewish 
high holidays, and the Rosh is the head. Ha Shana Shana is year, so it's the head of the year. It's the first day of the year, the head of the year. So the the, the Hebrew writer is saying at the head of things, okay, in the beginning, but at the head, right? Um, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, the Greek word arche is a bit different from that, and neither one of them is like our word beginning. If you asked, um, this is in my book, in the beginning was the word, right? But if you ask an ancient Greek, um, what is the arche of all things? What's the arche of the universe? Um, the Greek would not be thinking, okay, what was the first thing to happen in the universe? They're not thinking about that, okay? Um, they are thinking uh, in some ways analogously to the Hebrew thought. The Hebrew thinks, what's at the head of things? But not the first domino in a series of dominoes, right? What's the, the Greek is thinking, what's the ruling principle of all things? Um, what governs all things, right? Uh, we, we say that someone is, a, is an oligarch. The people are, you have an oligarchy because it's governed by a few, right? Um, what's the governing principle? And if you ask a Greek philosopher, if you ask Pythagoras, what is the arche of the universe? He would have said number, right? Um, that doesn't mean that he said, that, well, first there were numbers and then there were objects. It's, it's the fundamental principle that underlies all of reality. Um, and he, he was a bit of a religious mystic, was Pythagoras. Uh, the philosopher Thales said it was water, because water can assume uh, the, um, the form of solid, liquid, or gas, um, and all things we see around us change, okay? Well, St. John is now answering the question. It's a Greek question, but it's also a Jewish question. What's, what underlies all things? What governs all things? What embraces all things? What's at the heart of all things, okay? That's what it really means to be in the beginning here. It's not just the first domino. It's not the first domino at all. Um, in the beginning, and he says, in the beginning was the word. Um, en arche, en arche, en hologos. Uh, and I know, I, I, I wrote this in the book, and you perhaps may have heard, that this is a Greek term. This is a Greek term from philosophy, the logos, right? Um, and I'm going to suggest that it has a Hebrew force to it that may be a bit surprising. Um, it's the word that John chooses because he, again, I think he's conceiving of things in his native Hebrew way, but he's composing directly into Greek. All right. But first, uh, any, any questions or comments about Arche? Um, I'm going to, what I want to do this time and see how it works is I'll talk for about 10 minutes, open up for questions, move on a little bit, something different, um, open up for questions. We'll have a short break at the, uh, at, at the 60 minute mark. Um, any, any questions or comments about beginning? Uh, yeah, who we, I got to put my glasses on. Darn it. This is age. Stan. How close is the in the beginning of Genesis one and John one? I mean, I think I think it's like this. Okay. okay, yeah, I think that John is thinking in his mind, but a sheath 
Bereshith in the beginning, um, and it's then in the beginning, Haitha uh, Hadabar. Uh, in the beginning was the word. Uh, in Genesis, it's, it's Bereshith bara Elohim, in the beginning created God. The subject comes after the verb. Um, the uh, the heavens and the earth. I I I think it's so deliberate. He's he wants everybody who knows anything about the Hebrew scriptures to think of that immediately, and to think of this now as a completion, a fulfillment, um, opening out of what uh, what um, the sacred author wrote in Genesis, what Moses wrote. Um, if we take Moses to be the author, the intentionality is is I think obvious. Uh, are there nuances? Are there are there differences in those in those phrases? Uh, yeah. Well, let, let's go. Let's hold that question for a little bit because the the notion of creation is about to come, right? Um, and if if uh. See, it was impossible because the revelation of the inner life of God had not yet been given. It was quite impossible for the sacred author of Genesis to go before um, creation, which is essentially what John is doing here. We're going to get creation in, in a subsequent verse, so hold off on that question for, for a moment. Um, anybody else? Question about R.K. Other people said, Heraclitus said it was fire. Right, uh, Susan. Hi, um, I went. I attended a, a a short seminar on languages, and and uh, the the uh, the doctor of languages. He told he said that um, that Greek was the was a, a far more uh, far more uh, expressive language in the terms of philosophy and ideas and so on like that than Hebrew was. And um, so I'm wondering, is it, so I guess my question is, so is this, why did, uh, why did St. John choose to write in Greek? Well, he wanted to be understood by everybody, right? Um, he's, he's writing in Greek because that's what everybody's going to understand. And, uh, you know, who knows when he wrote this? I tend to view it as actually a lot earlier than many scholars, I think, with sort of slender evidence, uh, say that it was written. But, you know, we can imagine him already by the year uh, 70, um, that's the year of the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, we can imagine him already in some place like Ephesus, where he eventually uh, lived out the rest of his life, and then on Patmos, off an island off the coast of Asia Minor. Um, opposite Ephesus, and everybody's speaking Greek, right? Even a lot of Jews, right? Not, not Jews, the Jews from the diaspora from centuries uh, have as their native language, as their mother tongue, they have Greek. Um, and and, and uh, they would not know Aramaic, nor would they nor would they study it. It was not a really a literary language. Um, they would certainly learn Hebrew, but they would they would converse in Greek. They would write in Greek, and that's why we have the the Septuagint translation, right? It's for the sake of Jews who may live very, very far from uh, Jerusalem. 
um, whose native tongue is Greek. And um, that's just the way it's going to be, you know. Uh, so he, he writes in Greek because that's the language. That's what everybody's going to understand. But he's thinking in Hebrew, um, but composing directly into the other language. That, and that's going to cause some habits to, to arise. And yet I think we can see even through those habits that he is echoing the voice of Jesus. So if we, just, if we filter some of that out, we see Jesus in John talking in many of the same ways, using the same kinds of figures of speech, the same uh, linguistic habits that we are familiar with in the parables that, um, that uh, are, are given to us in uh, St. Matthew and St. Luke. Um, but any more questions about R.K.? Is, um, yes, they would st- certainly study Hebrew, right? Yeah, you you study it as a literary and sacred language. Um, is is that a hand up, uh, Nathan? Yeah, I was I was curious about the RK thing. So you had mentioned, I think Pythagoras said that the RK or the sort of governing principle would be a number. Number. Or, yeah. Um, and then others would say, I think something like water is sort of what all. When John is saying in the beginning, or the RK was the word, is he is he trying to address those other ideas and say, no, 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 it's not this. I'm going to get into. Yeah, he may well. He may well be aware of that. Right. Um, if if you have ever run into greek philosophers or or people who were influenced by greek philosophy or just people who talk about things so for instance uh saint luke um reports of saint paul's visit to athens to the areopagus and uh athens was i mean that was the place where athenians used to govern themselves from and um uh Athens no longer governs itself. I mean, Athens is, you know, a little outpost of the Roman Empire, but still it's a it's a big cultural center. And uh, St. Luke says, and I think it's a rather wistful and sad thing, that the Athenians like nothing better than to go there and talk uh, and, and discuss opinions and hear opinions all the time, right, um, about this and that and the other. Uh, and... Uh, St. Paul, who was a native speaker and writer of Greek, right? Um, that's his first language. I think he was quite aware of that. Um, so if, if if Paul could be quite aware of that, and I think someone as as, as brilliant as John certainly is, uh, has got to come in contact with it um, just from hanging around, uh, I mean, just from listening to people. Um is what I th- thought I saw another question, um, but I, yes, sir, your name is yes, not showing uh, up for iPad. Oh, it's, it's Mark. Okay. I know I have a, I just want to know if I'm wrong in thinking that the beginning was the word. <clears throat> no, the, this uh, beginning, is it the word before creation? Can we think of Yes, before beginning? creation, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this is before time. These, yeah, before uh, time, right? Yes, so, uh, oh, okay, that's so. what Augustine and the Church Fathers would would certainly say. Yes, yeah, before time. This is 
This is before the uh, Rosh that is mentioned in Genesis 1 1, right? This is even before that. Um, right. So let me, let me go now to that word, word, okay? Um, what was God doing before time? Augustine answered that. The question makes no sense, okay? Um, there is no time before time, so um, it, Augustine sweeps that away uh, in the Confessions, and that was the standard, that is the standard reply. Now, um, the word logos, from the word logos, we get our word logic, and um, I've typically heard it said that uh, what St. John is getting at here is a Greek idea um, we're thinking about the order of all things, the way things hold together, right? The the logic of things, the rationality of things. Okay, uh, I I want to pull away from that a little bit. Okay, and again, I'm I'm trying to think in a Hebrew way. Okay. Because Christ is going to be called the Word of God. And that has a special force for a Jew. Okay? Um, when what we call the Ten Commandments, uh, the J Jewish people do not call commandments. They call them uh, the, the Davarim, the Davarim, the words. The ten words of God. Okay, uh, the the word word davar. Um, Hebrew words are uh, Hebrew nouns are often intensely verbal in force. Um, if you if you think about what you know, what's like the fundamental part of speech in the Hebrew language? It's not the noun; it's the verb. And nouns are built from verbs, not the other way around. Um, so. Uh, uh, when uh, if, if we're thinking about what the word word means in uh, a Hebrew sense, it means an action, a speaking, okay? Um, not an abstract pattern, not a logic that is just there, impersonal, cold, right? But a speaking. And God speaks in uh, uh, <laughs> the Old Testament, right? Um, this is the word of God. The word of God came to the prophet Isaiah. That is, this is intensely personal. It's not impersonal or abstract. It's not logical design. It's a personal engagement. In the beginning, there was the speaking um, and that means something different, don't you think? I mean, um, a word for us can be, you know, a word on a page. Um, it doesn't necessarily imply a person speaking to another person, right? It's a word. Um, logic certainly doesn't imply a person speaking to another person, right? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's right. I mean, God speaks things into existence. Um, there is a, um, the verb uh, in Hebrew to say uh, is um, different from the word to, um, to speak or the word for word, but it's the same kind of idea, right? God speaks. Um, 
God doesn't just, you know, move things around. He speaks. Um, but what does God speak before the heavens and the earth? In the beginning, at the foundation of all things, is not the created universe. It is the speaking. What the heck does that mean? And the speaking was with God. Uh, and now uh, here our language sort of falls apart. Um, this is a kind of funny thing. Now, Hebrew Hebrew has very, very few prepositions. Right? Hebrew, Hebrew is an extremely terse language. Think of big monoliths of meaning set next to each other. Right? Um, Greek, all kinds of prepositions, all kinds of prefixes that you stick onto things, turn a different word, one word into a different word, right? Germanic languages have a ton of prepositions and, and prefixes. Hebrew has hardly any, okay? Um, but in this one case, it has a way of showing relationship between two things that is very powerful, and it's hard to convey in uh, either Greek or English, right? Um the best way that John has of conveying it is to use this uh, preposition pros, um, which doesn't suggest location merely. It suggests, uh, it, it takes the accusative case. It suggests a uh, sort of even motion, okay? It, the the, the um, word was in front of God. The word was facing God. Um, the word was, and uh, here I'm, he, I, I am quite certain, he's, again, he's thinking of the beginning of Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was waste and void. And hushek, darkness, hushek, hayom. Uh, Hayam uh, and Hushek, darkness. We don't even have to use the word was, they didn't even need it, right? Alpene um, was on the face of the deep, and on the face of means in front of, uh, upon, before, okay, right, right, right before, right in front of. Um, if you are standing before God in uh, ancient Hebrew, you are standing in the face of God, okay? Um, and that, I think, is what he's getting at here. Whatever this word is, this word is in the face of God, okay? Um, and then to clinch the mystery here, he says, and God was the word in the beginning. At the foundation of all things was the speaking. And the speaking was before the face of God. And God was the speaking. The speaking was God. That was at the foundation of all things, in the beginning, before the face of God.
Um, and, you know, no, nothing like this had ever been written before in the history of the human race, right? What, what we are essentially getting at here is the Trinity itself. It's the Trinity, all right? Um, the word of God is a personal word. It's an utterance of the Father. It stands before the Father face to face. And it is God. In the beginning was the utterance, the speaking. Um, and we can think of, um, uh, if, you, if you want to get really Trinitarian about it, we can think of the speaker uh, and the utterance and the one to whom is spoken. I mean, you, you can, there are ways to think of this in a three-part fashion. Um, but how about that now? Now, the, in the beginning was the speaking, this, the act of speaking. And the act of speaking was before the face of God. And God was the speaking. That was at the foundation of all before the face of God. I saw a pause here. Questions or comments now? Amy. Oh, wow. So when you're saying that, so, right, the Holy Spirit is the Ruah, right? The breath. And what do you do when you're speaking? Like breath is coming out of your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, if you think of that, um, um, darkness was on the face of the deep and the Ruach Elohim, the spirit of God was stirring above the waters. Um, and I just love the way it is in Hebrew. I mean, Hebrew is so terse. Okay. Um, Wayomer Elohim, and God said, Ihi or, Ihi or. And God said, Be light, and light. That's the way it is, right? And uh, that you were, Ihi, be. That's a play on the very name of God. So God is conferring being, his very self, right? He's conferring being upon what is not. And the first thing he confers being upon is light. And John is certainly thinking about that too, right? Because um, here now we move from that life of God, right, to creation. All things came to pass through him. And without him, Nothing came to pass. Um, and the Greek word that I'm translating is coming to pass. All things were made by him. It could be made. That's good. That's fine, too. All things were made by him. Um, it's againito. And uh, It's related to all those Greek words that have to do with generation, with begetting, um, with coming to, into existence, making, um, being itself, right? Um, 
and these are powerful words. They 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 gather power as we move through the gospels. Um, it, so when um, is it Mark or Matthew? And I, mean, I can't remember right now. I think it's Matthew. Um, says um, the, the the beginning of the book of um, what, what is. Uh, Oh, the book of the Genesis, the book of the beginning of Jesus, of 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 God saves Jesus, uh, the Christ, that is the anointed one, the son of David, son of Abraham. And we fail in our translation. We say, well, could this is the book of the generations. This is the genealogy. That's, I mean... As soon as we say that, maybe we have to, maybe we're stuck. Um, we lose the powerful connection. This is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And um, Matthew, too, is thinking in his different way um, that the, the Lord coming among us is a new Genesis, right? I mean, he, too, is thinking all the way back. And that word... Uh, in the genitive geneseos is, I mean, it's just the genitive, it's the possessive of the nominative genesis. Uh, our word genesis, the, the word that we use for the first book of the Bible, the word that the uh, translators in the Septuagint used for the first book of the Bible. Um, so all things came to pass, or all things were made through him, by him. And without him, there was nothing made that was made. And that means that, uh, yes, Stan. Can you comment a little bit on the on the Gnostic heresy and, and its relation to this particular passage? Oh well, um, I'm sure you'll do it later. But yeah, I mean, we could we could get into that. You know, um, there is always this nagging strain in Greek thought, even at its best, that can't let go of the notion that there's something thing suspicious or grimy or uh evil inducing about matter okay um this will show up even in the neoplatonic philosophers uh from whom saint augustine will learn that evil is not a substance but is uh, a spoiling of something good a privation a lack um the, even they sometimes seem to talk as if as if there's something bad about matter um and the jewish the jews never had that thought okay and the, the jews are remarkably free of it um which really really is kind of kind of interesting when you think that the same people who were forbidden by god to make any pictorial images of him Okay, so that actually anthropomorphic images of God in the Old Testament are very few, uh, very few and strictly poetic. I mean, you never hear about God, uh, you know, doing what Mr. Zeus does or Mr. Apollo, uh, you know, hanging around on a couch. There's nothing of that in uh, in the ancient Hebrew scripture. Nothing. Um, anyway, that, that, these, that these same people who uh, are commanded 
to keep their thoughts about God entirely free from mingling him up with, uh, uh, you know, what you might see or hold in your hand or something like that. These same people have apparently no conception um, that material reality is bad. It's not to be found in the Old Testament. So the, the notion that material reality is bad is kind of imported uh, into Judaism as a weird strain coming from outside, coming from Greece or coming from Persia. Um, but it's not native to the Jews. And it's not to be uh, it's not to be found in in uh, the Old Testament. And um, we've got to be very careful to make sure that we don't attribute it to John. All right. Uh, that's where the Gnostics made their fatal error in interpreting flesh as it, we find it in John in only one way that is the, the evil way. If it's fleshly, it must be bad. Um, that's not what John is talking about. That's not what he means by flesh. And I, I think it can be pretty obvious. And, and John himself had to oppose the Gnostics. They didn't understand um, what creation was really all about. And they didn't understand the the word made flesh that's why they had to deny that christ had a you know real body and things like that that's why they denied even the goodness of uh sexual being you know um they were they were bonkers uh you know i mean it's it's what you get when people uh go off on their own and get all enthusiastic and refuse to listen to humble old teachers trying to knock some uh, hard sense into their heads, and uh, they fly off into Never Never Land. Um, anyway, we'll perhaps talk about them some more as we go further with this. Um, so, now, uh, without him there was nothing made that was made. In him was life. Chaim. Okay. <laughs> uh, Fiddler on the Roof fans. It's a wonderful movie, and I find it almost unbearable to watch because the message of the movie is so anti-traditional. Um, I mean, if I were a faithful Orthodox Jew, I would find Fiddler on the Roof to be unbearable. You know? um, but in any case, in him was life, Lahaim. Um, and the life was the light of men. And now we've got light come in. What was the first thing that God made? Light, right? Uh, that net produced all kinds of wonderful theology and philosophy from the early Christians, the church fathers, on what that could be. Um, and they're almost universal in interpreting it as not the physical light that you see with your eyes. Okay. Um, uh, but, um, all of spiritual creation, uh, as Augustine seems in some places to interpret it, but, uh, it's a, it's a key word, right? It's a key word all throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures too. Um, God said, be light and light. Um, and God saw that the light was good. And, and, uh, so in him was life, key word and Life was the light of men, 
and it should be translated as men. We're, we're intensely personal here. It's not an abstraction. It's not just the human race. And the light lightens in the darkness. And the darkness has not grabbed it by both ends and crushed it. Has not gotten its grip on it. Has not overcome it. But has not... The Latin comprehend, suggesting uh, an embracing on both sides so that you could hem it in, uh, is really good here. Um, can't, can't, cannot grab it and pull it in and pull it down. But I think Maria had a question. Yeah, I wanted to ask. Back Zoe. It's Zoe and not Bios. Uh, I'll, I'll make a point of that in a moment. Yeah. Uh, Maria? Yeah, I'm sorry. I wanted to ask uh, which uh, church fathers could we read to learn more about what they thought and liked? Oh, well, um, it's uh, uh, Augustine's Confessions, especially. I mean, that, that, that's that's like the go-to place immediately. Um, in the last four books of the Confessions, he, he uh, Augustine talks about uh, um, form and matter, uh, time and eternity, creation, um, and uh, there you find him for the first time in his writings, uh, meditating upon what what Moses meant when he said in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then what Moses meant when by that light, you know, what it, what is that that light that that he creates? So it would be Augustine's Confessions first. Um, and so, I mean, that's like the source of so much, uh, uh, you know, further further development than that. Um, remember that uh, uh, one of the most important verses in Scripture, um, by thy light we see light, says the psalmist. And he cannot possibly mean that God shines a kind of physical light that enables us to see physical light. Okay, um, th there's there, there's no way that the Hebrew poet would have been that dense. Um, it's by the light of God, that is the wisdom of God, that we see what is true and good. Um, by thy light we see light. Um, key word there, and of course key word in the first chapter of Genesis, um, God said, let there be light. It was light. Uh, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, um, he does not mean that you are incandescent. He means, um, he means that you are, you, you are going, we hope, to shine uh, uh, the light of truth upon, upon people. By, by your actions, and they will praise your Father who is in heaven. Now, the word that is translated life here is one of two important Greek verbs, Greek words for life. Um, and uh, uh, there's a pretty significant difference between them, right? Um, the, the word, uh, the more common word for life is bios. Um, if we're talking about snail or something like that that's alive okay the life of the snail it would be bios okay from which we get biology all right 
uh, we derive the English word biology. Um, the bios, by the way, uh, some if you want me to explain it to you, I don't want to do it now, but it is ac actually uh, a, a cousin, a cousin of the English word quick, um, and it's a cousin of the Latin word vivere, uh, verb vivere, meaning to to live, to be alive. Um, so it's it's related that way to words like vital and so forth, vitamin, um, vita. But uh, uh, Zoe is is different. Um, Zoe is not just uh, uh, biological life. It's the, it's the kind of life that God has. Uh, if we if maybe we, if we get at it in English, you know, are you really alive? We're not talking about whether your heart is beating. Um, we're we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about a fullness of being, a radiance coming from within, uh, a, a power, um, uh, a, a, a power to see, to live, to delight, to love. Um, that can't be conveyed by bios alone. Um, in him was Zoe, uh, the word of God from all eternity is alive. Right, um, but not merely biologically alive. God is alive, right? God is described in uh, the Hebrew scriptures as the living God, right? Which makes no sense um, if life is merely to be thought of as what snails have, or even what Mr. Zeus has, or Mr. Apollo. Because Mr. Zeus and Mr. Apollo were born, but God was not. They have, so to speak, a kind of elevated biology. But the living God is infinitely beyond any elevated biology. He has zoe, he has life, he has lachaim, and that's not just bios. And life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. And again, we're back in Genesis. And the darkness has not grabbed it on both sides and pulled it down. Has not comprehended it. Okay? The darkness has not enclosed it. The darkness has not... I mean, what, what are you going to do? We say overcome it. Uh, it's a probably as good a, a word as any, uh, I suppose. I like the old word comprehended. The darkness has not comprehended it. Couldn't comprise it. Couldn't grab it on both sides. Um, any questions about this then? So we're moving to our, our hey. mark. Yes, uh, Lori? Um, I'm not sure if you mentioned this already, but what did you say the word Genesis means? Oh, the word Genesis is a Greek word. Um, it's it it it's uh, related to a whole slew of words in uh, Greek, and frankly, it's cousin of various English words and Latin words too. But they all have to do with begetting, becoming, uh, coming to pass, making. Okay. Uh, though the more typical word for making, the verb for, for making in Greek is poiein, from which we get poesis, that is the making of a plot, the making of a story, poetry. Um, but uh, uh, 
the the word genesis and its various forms here and in the other gospels too they you know they're like it's like an avalanche it's it's an avalanche of meaning all kinds of associations uh uh attach themselves to, to that word um because a hebrew can't think of that greek word a hebrew who understands some greek can't think of that greek word in a sacred text without thinking of genesis without that being somewhere in the back of the mind okay uh if you ask me what english germanic words it's related to uh, uh kin kind okay perhaps king um in latin genus meaning a kind kind of thing right uh latin uh Gnascor, to be born, okay, is also in that mix. Um, so natus, someone who is born, nativity, uh, these are all these are all cousins too. Though they don't look alike, but they're all cousins, historically, etymologically. Um, so it came to pass in verse six. And again, it, and it's the word, it's an important word, but we have no way of translating it, so we just say there was. But again, it happened that. It, it came about that. It was made that. Again, it's anthropos. There was a man, and now that word man is picked up from that he, he was, the, and life was the light of men. And see, if you translate that as human race, then you lose the connection, okay? So the life, of, the life was the light of men, and now there was a man, okay? Um, uh, sent from God, uh, and the word sent is related to our word for apostle. He was sent from God, the name of whom was God is gracious, Um, now, uh, our, our lectionary botches this pretty badly. The new American Bible is a terrible translation and you get something like, um, there was a man sent from God, a man named John was sent by God. Okay. Uh, ruining the sentence and ruining the emphasis. Um, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And that's an important thing to end with. Um, which other gospel writer makes a big deal out of that name? Yohanan. Uh, Amy? Is it Luke? Because he tells the birth of. Yeah. That's right, Luke. Right. Uh, so you may remember, okay, uh, Zachariah, um, God remembers, I believe. So that that's the name of the priest, Zachariah. Zachariah. Um, uh, he has his own enunciation, right? Uh, um, your 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 wife uh, Elizabeth is going to have uh, a son, and like Sarah and Abraham. Zachariah says, think I have no son. Look at her. Uh, <laughs> look at me. Look at her. Um, Sarah laughs, you know, and that's why they named that son Isaac, 
uh, playing on the verb to laugh in uh, in Hebrew. Um, so uh, the angel Gabriel, mean, meaning God is mighty, the might of God, uh, says, okay, all right, fine. Um, you're still going to have that son, but you're not going to be able to speak uh, for a while here. And um, uh, when the baby is born, they ask uh, Elizabeth, what's his name going to be? And she replies, Yohanan, right? Um, Luke is a native Greek speaker composing directly into Greek, okay? Though he knows Hebrew, but he's thoroughly Greek. Um, Yohanan. I think I think Sahar means to remember. I need to look this up again. I need to make sure. But it means God, the Lord, Yah, uh, the Lord remembers. Um, so Yohanan means the Lord is gracious or the grace of the Lord, grace of God. Um, and uh, Yohanan is a very rare name in uh, uh, the Old Testament. Um, just not there. We get it once or twice. Uh, nobody important. Um, in fact, it's, you know, if you wanted to name your kid, if you wanted to name your son after some brave, good, holy, important figure in uh, uh, Jewish history, Yohanan is not going to be it. Um, the other form of the name, see, if you put the Yah first, you get Yohanan. If you put the Yah second, you get Hananiah, Ananias. Okay. Uh, and I mean, you really don't want to be named Hanya because that was a false prophet. Uh, he was, uh, I say in the book, he was a happy, clappy prophet. Uh, you know, don't worry, don't worry about Babylonians. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's not a propitious name. And, and the, the kinsmen say, you know, why do you pick this name? At least, if you're going to name him something like that, at least it should be in the family, you know? But this is not even a name in the family. But um, Zachariah, Zachariah uh, uh, confirms his name shall be Yohanan. Okay. And I think it's crucial here. The name whose name was God is gracious. All right. He writes it, right? he writes it, and then he's able to speak, and he uh, bursts out in a Hebrew poem, by the way. It's a Hebrew poem, okay, um, which uh, Luke must have had from the memory of Mary, who composed her own Hebrew poem, um, the, the Magnificat. It's a Hebrew poem. You can tell it it's a Hebrew poem because of its uh, its structure, the way it uses words. It's a Hebrew poem that Luke has translated into Greek, um, into his own Greek. But it's composed, you know, back in the old days, people used to compose poetry. This is not an unusual thing. It's not a new thing in the world, you know. Uh, scholars say, oh, Luke was making it up as if Mary could not have composed a poem uh, about the most important thing that ever happened to her. Come on. Um, give me a break, you know. Of course it's a thing that somebody might do. Um, oh, it seems to, uh, uh, it seems to owe something to uh, Hannah's prayer. In, in, well, of course it does. I mean, what do you expect? Um, yes, I do imagine that it was sung. It was chanted, right? Poems are meant to be sung. 
not to be recited with a super serious air and everybody pretends to enjoy and understand your poem. What they're really looking at is their watches saying, when can we get out of this poetry reading? Um, right. Uh, anyway, so there was a man sent from God whose name was God is gracious. Um, uh, was the Septuagint the Old Testament text in Galilee? Difficult question. I, I don't. I think I'm not qualified to answer. Um, Septuagint, I think, was everywhere. But how familiar the apostles themselves would have been with it is not entirely clear to me. I'm going to have to forego that question. I think they were. I think they were aware of it, and I think they probably had seen copies of it. Perhaps they had read it, uh, but I'm going to let that one that one stand. This man came, and I'm going to. We're going to. Um, Pharisees hated it. Yeah, uh, right. I mean, Greek. Uh, <laughs> it's Greek. Um, the, 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 this will be uh, my last before we take a little bit of a break, then we come back. Um, so this man came for Marturia. And it's it's just not possible to get that in English, right? Um, he came for the action of a martus, that is, a witness, a testifier, but because of everything that we know, even by now, if John is writing this, say, circa 70 AD, there are plenty of people who testified to Christ by giving up their lives. So that the word martus has already by this time acquired the meaning that it has for us. A martyr is someone who gives witness to God by his life, giving it up. Okay. And uh, everybody who reads this or hears this knows that john the baptist will will do that right he will be a martyr in that sense also he will be beheaded by uh herod antipas um so he came um to uh give witness to testify to to martyr right he came for martyrship what are we going to say um to to martyr for the light, um, to witness to the light, so that all might believe in it, so that through him, sorry, through him all might believe, all might believe. He himself was not the light, but he came to be a martyr, to witness to, to testify to the light. Right. Um, so let's let's pause here. Take a break. Get a drink. Five minutes. OK, come back. The Magnus podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more by becoming a fellow today, visit MagnusInstitute.org. Copyright 2022. Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.